as we embark on this new chapter in the history of our church. Uh, the events of today have brought me to 1 Corinthians 15, and if you have your Bible, you can turn there where we are going to be giving our attention to the first 11 verses of this chapter. Now this text comes in the context of a letter that Paul writes to a church, to a group of Christians in a place that Paul knew as Corinth, what the one that we know today now as Southern Greece. This was a church that faced huge problems. They were a church threatened by divisions, by immorality, by jealousy and conceit, by arrogance and unbelief. Big problems in this church. From the outside, it, it, it would have looked like a disaster. And Paul writes this letter ultimately to call them to remember. He wants them to remember what they have heard, to remember who they are, and to remember how to live in light of this truth. And I'm drawn to this text today, not because we are a church with huge problems, thanks be to God. He has seen fit to protect and preserve us by his grace, but because we, like the Corinthian church, are called to be a church with a memory. Now, over the last two months, I've been considering these two related questions. First, what kind of pastor am I called to be? And second, related to that, what kind of church are we called to be? And I pose these questions not as if there are a, just a plethora of good options to choose from, like what kind of flavor of ice cream am I going to have? No, this is a far more pointed question, a far more significant question for me and for us. I might pose the question this way, what is this church and its ministry to be all about? What is my ministry to be all about? These are the questions I've been considering and praying over these last several weeks, and I want you all to know something. I don't stand here today as someone who looks to offer something new. I don't come before you interested in what new paths we can find for ourselves. I stand here, I serve here as someone who is called to declare not a new story, but the old story. We don't gather and we won't gather as those searching for new paths, but instead we look to the ancient paths that we might all the more clearly see the good way of God's kingdom and walk in it. So as I consider this question, what is our church and its ministry to be all about? I want to begin with this call to us. We are called to be a people with a memory. We are a church that remembers. I am called to be a pastor that remembers and reminds. I'm in the business of reminding. And I want to do it with complete patience. So let us be reminded by Paul of our hope, of our foundation together this morning. If you're there, please follow along with me as I read from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. And as we read, remember, these are God's words to us. God is a God who speaks, and his word is living and active. His word is sufficient for us. So we're, this is not just something we're kind of looking off in the distance. It's somehow detached from us. But God has something to say to us today through his word. So let us look together. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you that you are not silent, but you speak to us today. Impress upon our minds and our hearts something of your astounding goodness and grace as we consider your holy word. Spirit, give us ears to hear and eyes to see you. We pray this in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. Amen. And once there was a, a kind and friendly man named Jimmy. But Jimmy had a very unusual problem. He had no ability to remember. In 1975, true story, he walked into the office of Dr. Oliver Sachs with a cheerful, Hiya, Doc. Nice morning. Do I take this chair here? Dr. Sachs then directed him to sit down and asked him a series of questions. And Jimmy answered each of the questions the doctor asked in a helpful and cheerful way. As long as those questions... Those answers could, could be found sometime before 1945. So Jimmy told the doctor about his childhood and about his childhood friends, about joining and serving in the Navy, but Jimmy knew nothing about what had happened in the previous 30 years. He still thought Harry Truman was president. He had no idea that anyone had landed on the moon. At one point, Dr. Sachs, Sachs handed Jimmy a mirror so that he could look at himself. And Jimmy was shocked to see that instead of looking the face of a 19-year-old, the face staring back at him was weathered and graying, was middle-aged, was 49, not 19. Jimmy was terrified. He grabbed the sides of the chair and asked, what's going on? What's happened to me? Is this a nightmare? Am I crazy? And Dr. Sachs, he calmed him down, and then he brought him over to look out the window at the park below. And after a couple of minutes, Jimmy turned around with a smile and said, Hi, Doc. Nice morning. You want to talk to me? Do you want me to take this chair right here? The doctor asked him, Haven't we met before? And Jimmy responded, No, I can't say we have. Now, these interactions between Jimmy and Dr. Sachs continued over the next nine years. Every time Jimmy saw the doctor, he beamed with the same greeting. Hi, Doc. Nice morning. Do I take this chair right here? Everything that Jimmy encountered was new. Nothing was ever remembered. He could not find his way around the home where he lived. He could not remember anyone's name. Jimmy lived in a world where he was perpetually lost, perpetually wandering, never remembering. And we see in Jimmy's story that, that memory is about much more than just information recall. To have a memory means more than accessing data storage in your brain. Without a memory, Jimmy could not learn. Without a memory, Jimmy could not change or grow. With no memory, Jimmy could not understand where he was or who was around him. 
Those responsible for caring for Jimmy day to day started referring to him as a lost soul. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for us all. To live without a memory, to live without remembering is to be always lost, constantly adrift at sea. What we remember, it, it anchors us amid turmoil. It directs us when we are confused. What we remember shapes how we live. And in a sense, the entire Bible is a book that pulsates with this call to remember. So from, from the rainbow stretched across the sky as a reminder of God's promise, to the invitation to the Lord's table to remember God's deliverance, the people of God are to be a remembering people. Grace Church, we are called to be a people with a memory, a church that remembers. Now, if this is who we are called to be, then we must know and be on the same page about just what we are to remember. And that is what I want us to spend our time considering as we look at this text. What must we remember? Well, in the first place, Grace Church, we must remember what we've heard. We remember what we have heard. Paul's ministry to the Corinthians began as a ministry of proclamation. He came to them speaking. But he didn't come with, with social commentary or folk wisdom. He didn't come with hot takes about what was going on in Corinth. He came speaking a specific message. He came to proclaim the gospel. And it was this message that the Corinthians heard. It was this message that, that defined who they were. And so... This is the very heart of Paul's reminder to the Corinthians. It was the gospel. He doesn't say, now, now listen closely, and I'm going to tell you the secret. I'm going to finally give you the secret that you've needed. No, no, this is the thing that he came to tell them. He wants them to remember what they've already heard. So look back at verse 1. He says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. What Paul points to is that which he had proclaimed, the gospel. This is what he preached. This is what they heard. This is what they received. The gospel was the thing. Paul describes his message in, in verse 3 as that of first importance. I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. In other words, even though all that Paul teaches is important, even though all that the Bible teaches is important, not everything is equally important. Paul is saying, this is the most important thing that I have received, and it's the most important thing that you will ever hear. There's nothing more important than this message. It's of first importance. So what is it that Paul delivered to them? What is it that they heard and received? What must we remember? What is of first importance? What is this of first importance gospel? Let's consider how Paul defines it. He begins halfway through verse 3. He says, this is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Jesus Christ, the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the very radiance of the glory of God. Paul says, this one died. The very God of life, the one through whom and for whom all things were created, even the wood that made up the cross that he was hung upon, even the men who drove nails through his body to attach him to that tree, this Jesus gave himself up and died. 
He is the one who is before all things and in whom all things hold together, yet he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. But why? Why would such a tragedy to befall the anointed one, the one who lived a perfect life, who walked in complete righteousness, in full wisdom every moment of his life? Why did he die? Paul says Christ died for our sins. You see, each and every one of us, every one of us in this room is a sinner. We choose to reject God through the choices that we make, through our actions, through our, our misdirected affections, disordered affections. Every one of us has turned and gone our own way. And there are points where we realize, man, I can't do any better. I realize things aren't as they should be. I'm not as happy as I want to be. I'm not as good as I should be. Or, or my life's not working out how I imagined it would. And so we reach points where we, we try to fix things. We try to do better. We try to earn our way to being good enough to des deserve something better. But reality attests and scripture attests that we all fall short of the glory of God. None of us can save ourselves. All that we earn for all of our trying is the sentence that comes upon every one of us, that every one of us must confront, and that is death. But thanks be to God, Christ died for our sins. This is why he came. This is why he died. For our sake, God made Jesus Christ, the one who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. In Jesus, we can receive mercy and grace, righteousness and life, hope and joy, and it is a free gift offered to us. A free gift. We can't earn it. A free gift offered to us by grace. Christ died for our sins. And Paul says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This is what all of Scripture is about. This is what it all points to. It's leading to. All of humanity falls short of the glory of God. This is the story of Scripture. We fall short of the good way of living that leads to everlasting peace and joy in God's presence. We all fall short. Adam and Eve fell short. Go, go through every individual in the Bible. Everyone falls short. But God makes a way to that joy and peace through His Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should have eternal life. And then Paul gives, and what he does next is he gives proof of the fact that Christ died for our sins by saying that he was buried. This is the proof that Christ died. This idea that Christ died for our sins, it's not just some good idea somewhere, some wishful hypothetical that maybe Jesus actually died for our sins. No, Christ died and the proof of his death is that he was buried. Only dead people are buried. His burial testifies to the fact that, that Jesus, he, he really died. He completely died. His cold and lifeless body was laid in a tomb. We, we sang this earlier, and we, can, we, we sing these uh, mind-blowing truths Sunday after Sunday, and it's just so easy to just kind of, we sing it and kind of move on, enjoy the emotions of the, of the melody. But this is what we just sang. The author of life, the very author of life, there lifeless he lay. 
as the grave cast its shadow and darkness reigned. Christ died for our sins and was buried. It seemed like the darkest day, the the triumph of evil in the world. And if Christ's body stayed in that tomb, it would be. And all Christians would, would be a people most to be pitied. Because the one we put our hope in, the one we live for, was he no match for death? He died and was buried? Thanks be to God. No. Death was no match for him. Because out of death broke forth a great light as he rose up in victory, the glorious Christ. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. And Paul writes, he was raised on the third day. We have a living Savior this morning. Jesus Christ is alive even now. He is the one who holds the keys of death in his hands. And his resurrection is proof that what he came to do in dying for our sins and giving us eternal life, what he came to do, he truly accomplished. And Paul wants his readers to know, yes, Jesus really did die for our sins and rose on the third day. Not as some spirit or some hallucination, but as a real person on this earth, living and breathing and eating and sleeping. And so Paul Paul then pulls out his witnesses. He says, "You, you doubt me in any way? Don't doubt me. Jesus appeared to Peter, Cephas. He appeared to the disciples, the 12. That's 13 people so far. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Then he tells his readers, most of whom are still alive. Paul's saying, bringing all these people up, saying, hey, if you don't believe me, go ask them. They saw him after death. They talked to him. They're still talking about him. Know this, Jesus Christ died and rose again. This is the gospel. And Grace Church, this is what we have heard, and this is what we we must remember. We've heard this message before, and we're going to hear it again and again. It's this that we received, it's in this that we stand, and it's in this we will walk. If you take a look around and visit different churches or or look at different church websites in your spare time, enjoy that, or talk to different Christians, you will quickly learn that the church can be about a lot of different things. And most of these are good things. We want to serve our community and meet needs. Wonderful. We want to be a place where people belong. Great. We want to reach the world. Yes. We want to bring clarity and peace in the midst of a a culture filled with confusion and chaos. Yes. But our danger lies in being about too many things rather than the one thing that we must be about. One of my favorite theologians, the late theologian John Webster, he said it this way, and I think this might be projected. We'll see. What can eat away at the vitality and persuasiveness of the church's mission is the attempt to be and do and say far too many things, and so fail to be and do and say the one thing that is essential to the church, which only the church can say, and which above all things the church must say, namely, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, exalted as the Lord of all things, the one in whose presence we and the whole world stand. Do you get that this morning? We stand in the the presence of of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. Grace Church, we will not try to say everything to those around us. I will not try to say everything. I can't say everything. 
You don't want to hear me say everything. But we resolve to speak this one word and to speak it clearly and to speak it consistently. And that word is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we have heard. This is what we've received. This is what we must remember. If we are anything at all, at all as we gather together, it is this. We are a people who, who hear. Even as I stand up here and preach, I'm a person who stands here hearing. We gather together week after week to listen. We give our attention not to the preacher, but to God. Not to the songs, but to the word that's proclaimed in these songs. Not to the one praying, but the words, the truth that is articulated in these prayers as the gospel is proclaimed. We give our attention to God. He addresses us by his spirit through all of these things as we gather together. As his word is preached and the gospel is proclaimed. On January 5th, 2014, Larry Malaman, the founding pastor of this church, he preached the first sermon in the history of Grace Church. And he chose as his text, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. And he opened the story by telling, uh, he opened the sermon by telling a story about being on a boat on vacation in Key West with his family and becoming horrendously seasick. He was miserable. And, and I think in the sermon, this, I was listening to it this morning, and he went on for a long time talking about how miserable he was, <laughs> which to those that know Larry might not be a surprise. <laughs> and he described all that his body was going through, and he just said, like, am I going to die out here? Is there any way that I will ever get back to shore? And he was directed to go and stand in front of the boat to get the, the wind in his face, fresh air in his face. And as he stood there, he saw the shoreline as they were headed back in. And, and in his sermon, he, he talked about how he fixed his eyes on one point on that shore. And it made all the difference. Grace Church, we are a church who has been through choppy waters, and we will face more in the days ahead. But we must be a church that fixes our eyes on one thing, on Jesus Christ and him crucified. We stay focused on his message of salvation. This is what we have received, and it's in this that we stand. And I'm committed to us being a people that reminds one another, tirelessly, day after day, week after week, year after year of the gospel, of what we have heard from the first day until now. We must remember what we've heard. Second, we must remember who we are. We must remember what we've heard. We must remember who we are. We don't just gather to hear like we might hear a lecture or listen to a podcast. We're not listening to be entertained. What we've heard, it makes us into something. The word of God, the proclamation of the gospel brings the church into existence. It constitutes us as a people. In 1 Peter 2.5, that text that Larry preached on the first in that first sermon on that first Sunday, the history of this church, Peter writes this. He says, You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to say, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The gospel makes us who we are. And who are we? Well, we are the very people of God. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we become sons and daughters of God. We have been adopted into his family. And this reality, it becomes our story. We become a part of his story. 
It can be easy in our culture to tend to think of the Christian faith as something, and God, how he fits into it, as something that's just kind of added, added to us. And so people might say, I, I asked Jesus into my heart, or I found Jesus. But to be a Christian is to be completely wrapped up into who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. His story becomes our story, or we find our story in his. So Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. No longer I who live. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we see Paul referring to this new identity, what the gospel forms, just in verse 1, where Paul calls his readers brothers. He's addressing the whole church. Brothers and sisters are included in this. Since they received the gospel, the individual people that are there gathered listening to this letter read are his brothers and sisters. And if we considered the rest of Paul's letter, we would see how this language is all over the place. He wants them to know and to remember who they are. They are saints in Christ Jesus, with God as their father. Those are the opening verses. You see that in verse 2 and verse 3 of chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul describes how the church is, is Christ's body, made up of many different parts. And we're all joined together in Christ, receiving his life and participating in fellowship with him. So when we receive this gospel, this word, receive it by faith, we are then united to Christ, and in him we receive access to God. The forgiveness of our sins, adoption into his family, life in his name, and every spiritual blessing. Through the gospel, we have been swept up into the historical reality of Jesus Christ, his life and death and resurrection. It's his life and death that that define us and that we participate in. Our old selves die with him, and we are raised to newness of life in his name. So, Grace Church, we must remember who we are. But in our looking back, while we primarily look at what the gospel has made us, we don't only look at what the gospel has made us. We are a people who have a past. We each have particular stories. And consider how Paul speaks of this. No sooner does he speak of Jesus appearing to him than he turns to tell the Corinthian church about the worst part of his story. We see this in verse 9. Paul says he sees himself as unworthy to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church of God. In remembering the gospel, Paul doesn't forget who he once was. He doesn't forget his history. Even though it's, he says, I have died and my life is hidden with Christ in God, he doesn't forget the part of him that's died. No, his, his past, his regret becomes a vital part of the display of God's grace. And so it is with all of our stories. We all will face significant challenges. We will be confronted with devastating disappointments. And many of us are living there now. We may be tempted to despair or weighed down by regret and filled with sorrow over dreams and hopes that will never be realized. But who we are now and the works that God is preparing for us that we might walk in them, all of that depends upon, in God's sovereignty, what we have walked through. It all depends upon our story. So as we remember who we are, we must be those who who look back with gratefulness to God's redemptive work. He takes the mess and the disappointment of our lives, all of it, and uses it in ways that we could never have imagined. 
as a church and as individuals, we don't, we don't leave who we once were behind. It's what we, we bring with us, we carry with us. We are a people marked by scars who tell stories of the sufficiency of God's grace. I heard uh, or read recently an, an author talking about the resurrection and, and new life in Christ do, does not mean there are no more scars. And he points to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, when he appeared to the disciples, do you know what he did? He showed the disciples his scars. So our past is not something we, we leave behind. And so we, we need to remember who we are as we remember our stories. So I stand here before you today as a product of a story that I was plunged into the middle of when I was born. I had nothing to do with what preceded me, but I was born to Bob and Julie Coughlin. I was born into a family of, of an older brother, an older sister, and three younger sisters followed behind that. I was born into what became Sovereign Grace Churches. I was born into... Uh, Fairfax Covenant Church, and we planted a church in Charlotte, North Carolina, Crossway Community Church, and we moved to Covenant Life Church. I can't tell my story apart from all of these different things that have become a part of my story that, that make me who I am today. I can't tell my story apart from, I mean, I could look around this room and, and talk about how the various people have been a part of my story. When John was introducing the service this morning, I was just, and, and he was visibly moved, uh, I was my mind often goes back to the ninth grade classroom when, when John Loftness was my ninth grade Bible teacher. And I was a punk. <laughs> I had no interest in being in that classroom. Uh, I wanted to be there just to, to um, make havoc. And uh, I mean, that was my intent and get through unscathed without uh, John going back and talking to my dad about something I did or something. <laughs> now, those, were, those were my goals. And yet here we are, good friends serving together serving this church together. It I, blows my mind. I don't stand here alone. I, I, I am, could never be, I told Christine when I proposed to her that I cannot be who God made me to be without you. And we, we talk about this sometimes. We'll, we're coming up on our 17th anniversary. And uh, I, I cannot imagine life without her uh, and, and how God has shaped me through her. And what a gift that is. Grace Church, we, we have had people join us. We've had people leave us for many different reasons. They're all a part of our story. And God uses them all. He, he brings all these particular stories, individual stories, different stories together and makes us into a people to put on display His glory and His grace. So by the grace of God, brothers and sisters, we are what we are. So we thank God for, for the gifts, the many gifts that he's given us. Some sad memories, some joy-filled memories, but all of them God uses to testify to his faithfulness and goodness and grace poured out on us. In the late 18th century, a British pastor was asked to preach a sermon in the home of a friend. And he chose to, to preach from, from this little phrase in 1 Corinthians 5.10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this pastor, he felt Paul's words keenly. This pastor was a former slave trader who was dramatically saved and became a faithful pastor and penned one of the most famous hymns in the English language, Amazing Grace. His name, if you haven't yet figured this out, was John Newton. And as an aside, 
because this is a part of our story. John Newton was, Larry would say he was his historical hero. In his sermon, John Newton's, in this living room, he presented a short summary of the Christian's life on earth, and this is what he said. He said, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, oh, how imperfect and deficient. Not what I might be, considering my privileges and opportunities. Not what I wish to be. God, who knows my heart, knows I wish to be like him. I'm not what I hope to be, ere long to drop this clay tabernacle to be like him and see him as he is. Not what I once was, a child of sin and slave of the devil. Though not all these, not what I ought to be, not what I might be, not what I wish or hope to be, and not what I once was, I think I can truly say with the apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. In Grace Church, by the grace of God, we are what we are, and it is all of His grace. And church, as we remember, we're not drawn into passivity. We're drawn into activity. We're drawn into doing something. And this remembering, this activity that we're called into is an act of testifying of what we remember. Who, testifying of, of who we now are in Jesus Christ. We are those who gather together week after week, and as we, as we scatter day after day, to bear witness to the worth and work of God. That's what we do. Yeah. We bear witness to the worth and work of God every week. I, talk, I often talk about how we gather together to be reoriented to reality. We, we need to be reminded of what's really real. All kinds of stories we hear all week long, all kinds of, of alternate realities that we could, might live according to. But we gather to be built into the one story Amen. that subsumes all others. The one story that we need to hear again and again. And then we go out from here and we do the same. We testify in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our world to the excellency and hope of Jesus Christ. It's our memory of the gospel and who that gospel has saved us to be that propels us forward in mission and hope. To be a people that remembers is not to be a people that, that just live in nostalgia or, or just revelry of the past. No, we are a people of action that are propelled forward into the future in, in mission and in hope because of what we remember. Grace Church is a church that has been marked by and built upon this message of the gospel. It's been built upon this remembering, whether or not you've realized it or not. We've been remembering together for a long time. The gospel is the focus of Larry's faithful preaching over these last nine years. And as we look forward, it is what I will remind us of again and again and again. We have been and will be a church that remembers the old story of Jesus and his love. This is the message that constitutes our hope, that brings us comfort, that sustains us through trials, that strengthens our faith. And all of this to the praise of his glorious name. Would you pray with me? Yeah. Oh, Father, give us grace to faithfully be a church that remembers. To be a people with a memory. By your spirit, help us to remember what we have heard in the gospel. Help us to remember who we are in your son as a people with a story who have been swept up into your great story of redemption. Give us grace to set our hearts on what you have done for us. To think on you, to love you, to obey you. Would you be our supreme delight and joy? Amen. Amen.